Welcome in, everyone. Hello, everybody. This is Everything Sucks, Let's Fix It, episode 31. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Um, today is January 19th. God, I forgot what I'm supposed to do for a second there. <laughs> 2024. Uh, you know I, what that means, Ben? That means the Iowa caucus has happened. Indeed. That is crazy. We are officially in the presidential cycle of 2024, people. It is real. Yeah. God, it feels like life goes by way too fast, dude. <laughs> it's crazy. I feel like the 2020 election was like yesterday. Yeah, I, I guess I do so. not feel like Joe Biden's been president for three years already. It is, it is wild. Right? And you were worried about being really disappointed by the caucus, which... Yeah, so like I always love the Iowa caucuses. It's so much fun to watch the votes come in, read the returns, all the idiosync- idiosyncrasies, you know, did these campaign strategies play out well? And we all knew what the result was going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And which made it very anticlimactic. Um, Trump won the day at 51% of the vote. DeSantis came in second place, which is kind of a big deal. Mm. He got 21.2%. Haley got 19.1%. And Ramaswamy got 77 Actually, very strong showing by Vivek. You think so? Yes. Okay. I did not suspect he would get 7.7%. I'm, I'm incredibly surprised and impressed. Really? I really am. Okay. That's hard to do to get 7 8% in a primary like I that. I guess. I just imagine he's been spending every single minute of his time yeah. talking to Iowa voters. Yeah. I mean, like he, I think he's had twice the amount of campaign events as Ron DeSantis. Wow. Which is saying something. Ron DeSantis, hit, he did the full Grassley. He went to every single county in Iowa. He hit all 99. Um, and, you know, he came in second. He was able to... Uh, get above Haley, which was a big deal. I think this is the best case scenario for Trump, to be honest. Like that, they're neck and neck and exactly. second. Exactly. It's yeah. like there isn't one clear alternative. It's not sure. like DeSantis ran away with second or Haley ran away, and the other one is just like has no reason to continue. They both feel like they have a reason to continue, which is exactly where Trump wants these guys. Sure. It's interesting because I did see some analysis that said that this isn't great for Trump because he only got 51% of the vote. And it means that 49% of Republicans, even in a super rural state, are looking for alternatives. I disagree with that because DeSantis and Ramaswamy voters, I think will have absolutely no problem voting for Trump. That's exactly right. I totally agree with that analysis. DeSantis and Ramaswamy voters are Trump voters Mm -hmm. and they would be happy to vote for Trump. But like, just because it wasn't his first pick doesn't mean that they won't go running out and voting for Trump in the general election. Yeah, they're Trump voters who think maybe one of the other two, it would be more electable. Yes. That he doesn't have to worry about criminal convictions, right? Mm-hmm. But they still are completely aligned with Trump as far as ideology. Exactly. So now before the Iowa caucus returns came in, I did a little bit of analysis of the 2016 Iowa primary, and I kind of wanted to gauge the DeSantis and Haley strategies and see which parts of the states did they have the best shot of doing okay in. Mm. So I looked back at the results, and if we remember in the 2016 Iowa Iowa caucuses, Ted Cruz came in first. He beat Trump by like two percentage points. Um, Ted Cruz did best with evangelical voters. Then we had Marco Rubio, who came in third, very close to edging out Trump. Second place, Marco Rubio did really well in the suburbs, urban areas, and most importantly, the college and university counties. And that was where Haley was going to thrive. So these counties where Haley had the best chances to do well were Scott County, where Davenport was, Polk County, that's where Des Moines was, Story County, that's College Town, Johnson County, that has the University of Iowa, which is very important, and then Dallas County, all suburbs. Mm. That was Haley's only chance of winning, or at least coming in a close second, was dominating in those counties. Now, what I found so amazing, well, I want to give a little more background about the counties too. These are all counties where Trump and Biden were either even or Biden ran ahead. 
So Johnson County. Wow. Johnson County, that University of Iowa County, is Biden plus 37 at the general election. Wow. That's a huge Democratic stronghold. Mm-hmm. Haley did her best in Johnson County. Makes sense. Naturally. Yeah. Johnson County, like I said, University of Iowa, very educated electorate there. Mm-hmm. Haley tied Trump with college-educated voters. That might not sound like a lot because Trump isn't supposed to do well with college-educated voters historically. But what this means is those college-educated voters are looking for an alternative, and they are not on the Trump train. Yeah. They're not. Definitely. So Trump wins 98 counties. The only county he lost, Johnson County. Nikki Haley beat Donald Trump in Johnson County by one vote. Wait, I thought DeSantis won some counties. Nope. Really? DeSantis won zero counties. Through Now let's get... So that was Haley's path to victory. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm. Now let's get to DeSantis's path to victory. DeSantis needed to copy the Cruz strategy. He needed to go out and hit the urban evangelicals and the large population center evangelical county of Sioux County. Sioux County's in the Northwest. It's the largest population center that has evangelicals in it it's not like it's not like urban suburban it's not a university town it's more like it's a church county Mm. and so he needed to go after lynn county that has cedar rapids in it you need to go after sioux county that's where the evangelical base is and then marion county that's where cruz i'm sorry that's where desantis needed to run it up well (laughs) desantis was leading in sioux county for almost the entire night and then right near the end Trump pulls ahead and takes away DeSantis's only leading county. Hmm. And this is after DeSantis got the support from high evangelical leaders. Yeah. Leaders in the evangelical movement that have been correctly predicting and endorsing the winner of the Iowa primary for 20 years. Some of these guys in this evangelical base have been right. 20 years endorsing Mike Huckabee, endorsing Rick Santorum, endorsing Ted Cruz, endorsing Bob Dole. Endorsed Ron DeSantis and their losing streak is over. Trump is just a different element, man. He's just a totally different element. Yeah. And these evangelical voters no longer connect, I think, their politics as deeply with their church as they once did. They connect their politics with Trump. Yeah, he's just captured something else. His his charisma. Exactly. Yeah. His charisma has just tuned has tuned those voters out from listening to their religious leaders now. And DeSantis wasn't able to, you know, capitalize on what other Uh, presidential candidates in the past have been able to do i also think they see like it's not just that they're less connected to the church i don't even know if that's necessarily the case i think a lot of them see trump as very religious oh sure he's portrayed by some as like an extremely religious figure even though in reality he is not let's Mm -hmm. be completely clear on that he's like the most opposite of what you can imagine exactly but they they still have that idea of him one thing that was so funny for Ron was he he got the endorsement of Pastor John Palmer. Now, John Palmer is a big political religious leader in the county. Two hours before votes started, John Palmer went on TV and switched his endorsement from DeSantis to Haley. Two hours before votes started being counted, he got on TV and switched his endorsement. That is the most transparently let me try to pick the winner move that I've ever seen. In I my know. Life. And it was so funny, dude. And like literally after he's getting interviewed on CNN, the other CNN anchor was like, listen, I don't want to. I don't want to question the uh, I don't want to question the motives of a religious man, but it seemed like he was just trying to pick the winner, <laughs> <laughs> which I, th- I and then he picked wrong, which is hilarious, of course, right? So yeah, yeah. and but now I want to go into the exit polls yep. of Iowa caucuses that I think tell us a lot about the general election mm. and shows a big split in the Republican base that just frankly did not exist in 2016. It just it just wasn't there. Mm. So they asked this very important question. 
For each of the following, please tell me how you would feel if the candidate were the Republican Party's presidential nominee, Donald Trump. 79% of caucus goers would vote for Donald Trump, but 20% say they would ultimately not vote for him. Mm. That is a huge number. And what's crazy to me, they asked the same thing about Nikki Haley, and then 30% of caucus goers said they wouldn't vote for Nikki Haley. That's crazier. Right. Because this tells me, like, these two people cannot coexist in the same party. This is not a sustainable coalition at all. Really? No, you think I that 20% think... number is too high? Well, then that's what I wanted to figure out. Was, yeah. Is 20% actually that big of a deal? Mm-hmm. Let's Well, let's look back to a more recent um, primary that was very contentious, and people weren't very happy with the outcome. 2016, Bernie mm-hmm. versus Hillary, right? Mm-hmm. So the some vote um, polling, not polling, but some voter analysis agencies were able to dig into the data and find that 74% of Bernie Sanders voters ended up voting for Hillary Clinton in the general election. Well, if you do all the math out, that means that 10% of Democratic primary voters did not show up to vote in 2016. So that 20% number not voting for Trump is double what happened to Hillary Clinton. Okay. Which that tells me it's bad. Okay. And this yeah. isn't Iowa. This isn't, this isn't a swing state. This is a deep red state and True. it's 20%. And then we need, we need to look at what happens in New Hampshire with this figure. Because New Hampshire is a swing state... It has a lot more independents voting. Yeah. If this same question gets asked and you're looking at a 25% never voting for Trump, 30% never voting for Trump, the path to victory gets real slim. Do you think there's any wiggle room here as far as like from now until November for that 20%? Well, I, don't, I don't know. I don't. Listen, I, the, honestly, the only wiggle room I think there is is wiggle to move down. Mm. Because now we're getting to the point where Trump is going into these... Uh, criminal trials and then cnn exit poll asks if president trump was convicted of a crime would you vote for him or is he fit for the presidency 31 percent of people say no mm. so that i feel like that number only has the ability to go up uh not if, not if he's acquitted no not if he's acquitted if he's acquitted we're in a whole different environment yeah right yeah i think yeah. so yeah if he's but, acquitted but what he's fighting for is it he's fighting for the trial to get delayed so like that acquittal feels like him delaying the trials feels like his best case scenario. So acquittal doesn't even like seem like it's within the picture as far as part of the election scenario. No. And look, briefly about the Trump cases, Georgia, I think he's dead to rights. <laughs> D.C., I think he's dead to rights. The documents case down in Florida, I think he has a chance. And the, really? only, the only reason is because he has a better jury pool in Florida. So maybe the people in the jury acquit him because they like Trump or the judge was appointed oh. by him and maybe he's she's softer with him. Dude, I actually think it's the opposite. I hope it is. I, I think I think he's dead to rights in Florida and there's wiggle room in the other cases. Okay. Because uh, I think the because they have to make basically a racketeering argument in the yeah. other cases. Right. Which, Which is, is hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's like there was all of these little actions added up to a conspiracy to do this crime, which I, after looking at the evidence myself, I do believe I think it is a clear story to be told. Mm -hmm. But the documents case is so cut and dry. It's just like you took these, they asked for the documents back over and over and over again, and you continually said no. And then you like told people they were classified Mm -hmm. and then said I could de- I could have declassified them, but I didn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, like no, talk listen, about that. I understand yeah. that it's like definitely the like the more evidence case. Yeah, right. There's more evidence for that one. I'm just not convinced that the politics will be able to get okay. the conviction. But okay. no, listen. And so if he gets convicted, a lot of these voters 
aren't going to go with Trump at the end of the day. And it's going to make Biden in a much stronger position in 2020, which we've been we've been, you know, saying Biden's approval rating is going down for so long and all that. But mm-hmm. I don't know if it matters that much. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not worried about Biden's approval rating. I'm not I at all. think approval ratings rarely do. They, they aren't very definitive of how yeah. elections go. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in many cases. Um, I think I mean, we've talked many times about why we think Biden is a good candidate against Trump. And this is the perfect example. Perfect example. So now I want to get into the next election coming up in New Hampshire. All right. So New Hampshire is on Tuesday or Monday. I think it's Tuesday. Okay, good. Tuesday. Um, This is a much closer race. This is way more interesting. Uh, And the current polling has Trump at 48, Nikki Haley at 34. I've also and then DeSantis at five. So that's hilarious. DeSantis, drop out. Stop embarrassing yourself. Stop taking people's money. Go home. All right. Yeah, go go sit on the couch for a while. Yeah. Recoup. So I've also seen polls that have Trump and Haley tied, right? Me too. I've seen that. Yeah. So this is just the aggregate here. Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, who is a big supporter of Nikki Haley, has actually been downplaying expectations recently. He recently went on an interview with ABC, I think, and uh, he said, like, we're just looking for a strong second. And not wow. really, Chris Sununu, you were kind of saying that you guys were going to win. Yeah. And we all know that. So well, you can't really downplay expectations anymore. We thought you thought you were going to win. Yeah. It's it's hard because for Haley, New Hampshire is made up of voters that I think about 40% of them identify as independents. Yeah. That seems like the place for Haley to make her bread and butter. Well, right? this, this is exactly the next point I want to go into. Yeah. I have the demographic breakdown of New Hampshire sure. and how it differs from Iowa. So this is why New Hampshire has the best chance of going to Haley out of any other state. Let's look at the evangelical population. Well, Iowa 2024 was 55% evangelical. In 2016, the New Hampshire primary was 25% evangelical. Mm. Independents made up 16% of the Iowa caucuses and made up 42% of the New Hampshire primary. Moderate, 9% in Iowa, 27% in New Hampshire. Suburbs, 28% in Iowa, 54% in New Hampshire. Under 45, 23% in Iowa, 32% New Hampshire. This state is made for Haley. If she can't win this, she's screwed. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, if if we're expecting a strong second here, I mean, I get the argument that they think she still needs time to ramp up because mm-hmm. it's only relatively recent that Haley's become the clear second place contender. But I, I think she needs to take this state to be seen as viable yeah right? and she does and but th- there's this uh one i think it was uh yes marist marist polling uh recently hit the ground in new hampshire and they asked for nikki haley's approval <clears throat> rating and her approval rating is 45 percent approval 34 percent unapproval that's pretty rough yeah wow that's pretty rough but you know what's rougher i think she has a lower approval rating with independents than with republican voters Oh, my God. So that really limits her path. Wait, wait. She has lower with independents. Yes. Her approval rating okay. is lower with independents than with standard Republicans. Oh, no, I think I think that's OK. OK. How so? Because indep- the independents are the ones who are supposed to be voting for her. If yes. She to win. I agree with that. I, I would be worried if the end if the independents were more. I'm, I'm, I'm losing track here. What line are we at? Sorry. We are at cross tab number two. OK. OK. Okay, 37% favorable from independents, 44% unfavorable. Yes. Okay. So mm. that, that that's not good because that means like, okay, hold on. What are the type of independents that exist in New Hampshire? Yeah. Right? Are the independents in New Hampshire more likely Trump voters? 
And if that's the case, okay. then Nikki Haley's lead with independents in, New- in Iowa might not tell us much about the lead so, that she so could have in New Hampshire. To you, this isn't just saying, okay, maybe these independents are leaning left? No, because these, oh, sorry. These are Republican and Republican-leaning independents. Oh. Yes. Yeah, if they're not, if they don't want Haley, right. who do they want? They like, want Trump. <laughs> they want Trump. How are they independent if they want Trump? Right? That's know. the question. I don't know. But I think, I think this voter is how Trump won New Hampshire in 2016. Mm. This voter was not active. He did not, he or she did not feel that the uh, two-party system was doing anything for them. And then Trump was the alternative. Shake something up. And I think these people are still excited by him as the alternative. Okay. So independent doesn't mean moderate in this case, I don't think. Okay. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but I just think that's interesting. Sure. Um, but then, this is what's crazy to me. They pulled the 2020 election. If Joe Biden is the nominee, 52% of New Hampshire voters would vote for him. If if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, 45% would vote for him. This is among all. Mm. Democrat, Republican, independent. This is the exact same margin Biden won in 2020. Okay. Same seven-point win. Then they ask for Nikki Haley. 47% will vote for Nikki Haley. 44% will vote for Joe Biden. Nikki Haley beats Joe Biden in the swing states of swing states. Okay. And mm. Donald Trump can't do that. And the Republican voters are making a big mistake nominating Trump because they have mm. the option to not make it a close election. Yeah. They're too, they're too married to him. Man. They're married. Yeah. That's exactly right. They're just married to him. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I mean, like we just said, they don't want... Haley. Right. Like they wouldn't want to vote if it were Haley. So then that could bring, yes. And then, so if we look at the independence of this, um, Joe Biden gets 51% of independence against Donald Trump. Donald Trump gets 44%. Mm. Go over to Haley. Nikki Haley gets 51% of independence and Joe Biden gets 37% of independence. So she's getting that swing moderate. Yeah. I also think that's a good, that's a good indicator of why the favorable, unfavorable marker that we talked about earlier, that is, that is less um, it, it determines the election results less than what we're asking about who would you vote for if they were the nominee. Think about this. Right? This this poll has Joe Biden's approval rating at 40%, and then when asked to vote, 52% are voting for exactly. exactly. I don't think the approval rating matters at all. No, I don't either. It only matters what your alternative is. Exactly. That's it. Yep. And that's why you know Joe Biden is pretty happy with the Donald Trump alternative, because it looks like he could beat him. Yeah, and that's also why the independents wouldn't vote for Haley over Trump, or they find her unfavorable. But they would vote for over Biden. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, and then I want to try to get into, like, will people be satisfied? Will the Nikki Haley voter who wants Nikki Haley in the Republican primary turn out and vote for Donald Trump? And again, it doesn't look like they would. A lot of people show dissatisfaction, but more Republicans would be dissatisfied with Haley. 23% (laughs) of Republicans would be not satisfied at all with Nikki Haley. Wow. Which is just... Well, to me, that's Trump has captured the base so much, right? It's like, especially because Haley can so easily be painted as this forever war type candidate, Mm -hmm. right? Neocon type that Trump has pushed away from himself so hard. Um, She's she's the swamp. She is the swamp. She is George W. Bush's successor. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, the Trump vilifying that part of the party means that her lane becomes much more narrow way more narrow and so now where do we go from here we go from new hampshire next we have nevada which is a whole mess of a situation that i'm not going to go into explaining but they have a caucus and a primary but only the caucus picks the delegates point is the next important state is south carolina nikki haley used to be the governor of south carolina Mm -hmm. 
she has a chance to win in South Carolina, even though the current polls show her down by 30. If she does, I know, right? Isn't that so fucking sad? That's insane. So, but if she wins in New Hampshire, she might be able to make up some momentum. Yeah. DeSantis has skipped New Hampshire. He's already in South Carolina doing stuff. And he has no chance there either. No, no chance. No chance. No chance in South Carolina. The dude is done. He's embarrassing himself. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to, honestly, we should stop talking about Meatball Ron. I think it's over. <laughs> we'll, we'll give him a break. Um, we'll stop bullying him for yeah. now. But, you know, and then after South Carolina, that's going to be it. Trump will have the nomination locked up and it'll all be over. This will all be done by by before March. Unless Haley can win in New Hampshire. And South Carolina. Both. Yeah, she. I think she has to win both to earn a ticket for Super Tuesday. Really? Yeah. Okay, so, I think this, she's gotta win both. so there's no chance. I think there is a 2% chance. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, yeah. I did a lot of calculations to get to that 2% number. I'm not, I'm not pulling out of my ass, It's a I very promise. specific 2%. Maybe 25 Wow. But it's just, you know... We'll see what happens, but it's going to be a whole mess of shit. And again, the 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 exit poll data that I'm going to look at is how many people will not show up to vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee coming yeah. out of New Hampshire. That's the data point to look at. Definitely. That's what matters. Yeah, I man, I can understand how you got to that two percent because I'm looking at a poll that came out from Boston Globe today. Okay. okay. That put Trump at fifty two, Haley at thirty five in oh, New Hampshire. God, dude, it's <laughs> over. It's so dude, over. So much money was wasted. Do you know hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars, over $100 million was spent in Iowa mm-hmm. on ads? Nikki Haley has spent so much money in New Hampshire, and like all this money could have just gone to Trump's treasure, che- treasure chest to take down Joe Biden, right? Yeah. If the Republican Party was unified, Joe Biden would be in a shit position. But that's not what's happening. Joe Biden is sitting on $117 million cash on hand. Yeah. That's how much money he has in the bank. He raised $1.6 million in the 24 hours after Trump won Iowa. He is raking in the cash. Trump, he is sitting on $36 million. That a factor of three people. Yeah. Joe Biden's winning the money war. And he's only going to keep winning the money war because Joe Biden doesn't really have to spend right now. True. Joe Biden just has to sit back a little bit. It's so. Did you did you read about how uh, like U.S. executives at the World Economic Forum, which is currently happening, like seem to be siding with Trump? Yeah. They seem to be okay with him. That was so kind of funny to me because I feel like. Like, I expect the money to follow the winner. And to me, the signs point to Biden as the winner right now. Mm-hmm. But you have all these rich people who are disagreeing. Well, you're assuming that rich people are good political analysts. I don't think they are. Yeah, I guess not. You know, I don't think they are. I think they're actually terrible political analysts. Yeah. Um, I think how many of them believe that Howard Schultz in 2020, the CEO of Starbucks, could make an independent run? How many people believe that no labels could run? How many rich guys convinced Dean Phillips to run the Democratic primary? Right? Yeah. I don't think rich guys are good political analysts, um, but I do agree that they follow the money. Eventually, they will switch back over to Biden when it becomes obvious that he or not obvious, but when it becomes more likely that he defeats Donald Trump. Sure. Um, but also, I'm just going to say it. They're in, it's in their interest for Trump to win. Of course. Right. I mean, it's in their interest. Yes. They want, deep down, they want Trump to win. They, they, they don't want a deep, you know, American welfare state becoming developed under a Biden administration that might hold the Senate and the House. You know, that would be, they don't want that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, last thing I'll say about election stuff, because there has been an important endorsement in the Ohio Senate race. I don't have this on our notes, but it's on my head. So we could just mm. talk about it briefly. But Ohio Senate race. Donald Trump has endorsed Bernie Moreno in the Ohio Senate race. He is the most far right 
um, person in the Ohio Republican primary. There is uh, Matt Dolan, Frank LaRose, who is the current Ohio Secretary of State, and then Bernie Moreno, who was a car dealership owner, um, ex-businessman turned politician now. Um, Bernie Moreno is a very controversial figure. He has very hard stances on abortion. He also has proposed giving reparations to the descendants of white Union soldiers for ending slavery, as opposed to the descendants of slaves. That is the type of guy that Donald Trump has endorsed in Ohio, which now makes Sherrod Brown's reelection in the Ohio Senate that much more likely. Because now that Trump has given this endorsement, uh, Bernie Moreno is now running away with the nomination with a 20-point lead in the polls. Of course. There we go. Of course. Donald Trump, the kingmaker, um, anointing idiots to the throne. Yeah, yeah. Or giving Democrats the seats. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's how I like to look at it. So thank you. That gives Frank, that gives Sherrod Brown the best chance he could have had. Definitely. And I love Sherrod Brown. And we're, you know what? Let's talk about Sherrod Brown. Let's go to the child tax credit. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. he, he had a big part to play in that. You want to give yes, a rundown? Yes, he did. Sure. So um, we've talked many times on this show about um, the expanded child tax credit that was enacted during COVID as a way to relieve some some families uh, and give them more spending power. We just got an announcement that the the child tax credit might be returning, not completely to that COVID era form, but it's going to be getting closer to it. Hell yeah! So dude. the current child tax credit is two thousand dollars, but only sixteen hundred dollars of that is refundable at tax time. Now, refundable tax credits are still paid out in cash once a tax bill has been reduced to zero, whereas non-refundable tax credits can only be used to pay down tax debt. So raising that refundable number means you're putting more cash actually back into the pockets of people, even if their tax burden has been much lower. Um, under the proposed legislation, this was proposed by Democrat Ron Wyden out of Oregon um, in the Senate and a Republican representative who I don't have on here. I'm not sure who it is, but I am, I will say I'm excited that it was bipartisan. bipartisan. Awesome yeah. that it's bipartisan. That's yeah. exactly what we need. And this is a great bipartisan issue. Marco Rubio was a big proponent of um, increasing the child tax credit and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. One of the only good parts of the Donald Trump tax credit that I give him full credit for was the expansion of the child tax credit, which was pushed by Marco Rubio. Yes, yes. And we're going to get more into the politics of that, but I, yeah. I want to go over the technical aspects first. So mm -hmm. the proposed legislation increases the refundable child tax credit to $1,800 from that $1,600 for the 2023 tax returns. It raises it to $1,900 for 2024 and then $2,000 for 2025. Um, and parents who earn more than $200,000 or $400,000 if filing jointly won't be eligible for the full 2023 child tax credit, but they may receive a partial credit. So there is a progressive aspect to the taxation there, which is nice. Yeah. Um, the expansion will help 16 million children. God, I love which is to see fantastic. It. The total spend on this, on the whole package, is 78 billion. It's 33 billion that's going to the child tax credit, and then it's 33 billion more that goes to um, cutting taxes for small businesses um, and increasing funding for the low-income housing tax credit. I didn't see that in there. Really. That's awesome. Yeah, which is also great. So low-income housing tax credit is an incentive for developers to provide um, cost-controlled housing for people with low incomes, which is fantastic. We did a whole deep dive about the low-income housing tax credit. Exactly. Um, and then we have 
tax breaks for Taiwanese workers, which I assume was just slipped in there specifically for Taiwan Semiconductor, for TSMC, um, in making our chip factories. But I wonder if that's also foreseeing rising tensions with China in the Taiwan Strait. Oh, and just yeah. if more people want to come over in general, we are we are helping that happen. Yeah, there's a whole double thing. We want to increase our industrial capacity, and then we also want to get as close relations as Taiwan as we can. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, and so where 78 billion, right? A lot of money. Where is this coming from? It's financed by reining in the employer retention tax credit, which was meant to help companies keep more employees during COVID, but now has turned into kind of this massive vehicle for fraud. Uh, and they're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. So now we get into the politics, yeah. right? Sherrod Brown, he, he's been a huge proponent of the child tax credit, of the expanded child tax credit for a long time. He said this is almost a legislative miracle that six months ago, there was no chance of the child tax credit. Um, now, this was introduced by a Democrat and a Republican, which to me means there's leadership on both sides as far as um, like it signaling to the rest of the party that they can get on board. And yet there are wings of both parties that aren't on board. So on the Democrat side, they are hesitant to support it because they say they want more. Of course. The American Rescue Plan boosted the child tax credit from $2,000 to $3,000 for children under the age of six and from $2,000 to $3,600 for or sorry, 2,000 to 3,000 for children over the age of six, 2,000 to 3,600 for children under the age of six. So they're saying this increase is not enough. So I initially had a note on here that that, that would be dumb if it were true, but, um, or because last week we made the point that Republicans who were insisting on doing nothing on immigration, on rejecting federal money to help hungry children, um, that they were arguing that you shouldn't do that. The these reforms weren't doing enough, mm -hmm. and so you shouldn't take them up. And it sounded kind of ridiculous to think, okay, well, not doing any like not doing enough isn't an excuse for doing nothing, right? I do kind of understand this because once they get any kind of win on the child tax credit, the momentum is going to be gone, and it's going to be really hard to then change that exactly to get any further on that. So I understand Democrats pushing for more. Which is why I hope that this is a negotiation tactic from them yeah. to try to extract as much money for that child tax credit as they can. Mm -hmm. um, but in like at the end of the day, they should pass something on this. No, I totally agree. I think this is a very important bill. Again, 16 million children that are going to be helped by this. I think that's incredibly amazing. There aren't many things that the United States government can do to directly help people. And this, I think, reduces the child poverty rate by 4 or 6%. Now, the expansion of the child tax credit of the American Rescue Plan reduced it by 36% to 42%. Wow. So that's how much that reduced the child poverty level in the United States. This only does it by 4%. I'm comfortable with that 4% as long as we don't give up the larger fight for more money in the child tax credit later on. One of the things that I loved about the American Rescue Plan child tax credit that isn't in this child tax credit is the ARP um, sent monthly checks out to families of 300 bucks. It was like a, it was almost, it was operating like a child allowance 
with the veil of a tax credit. You're okay. getting a $300 check in the mail every month. This is different. This is a one-time refundable flat check. It's a whole different operating yeah. procedure now, right? Because now you're making people wait for that money. Maybe they have to go into debt before they get the tax return. Then how much of this tax return just goes pays on interest of credit cards they had to use? To, it's a whole different thing. Sure. I don't want that infrastructure or the idea of that infrastructure to be lost by this passing. Mm. This needs to be a starting point for further negotiation. But I mean, look, the the uh, the jobs the the American Jobs Act under Donald Trump changed the child child tax credit. Now here we are changing it again. It's yeah. very possible this could be something that we see in the future. True, but the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, if that's what you're talking about, I they think. expire eventually. And also that came out in 2017. Yeah. It's now been seven years. Right. Right. To and and we needed COVID to happen to provide the impetus to even True. be talking about this. I know. Right. So yeah. like it's it's skeptical. I'm I'm a little skeptical and I do want them to go as far as they possibly can right now. Yeah. On the other side, Republicans like far right House Republicans might not pass it just because they don't want anything to be done in Congress. They don't want <laughs> they, anything they, to be they done. They literally don't. Yeah, and they don't want anything that could be seen as a victory for the Biden administration, which this totally could. Now, Biden has come out himself kind of on the side of these um, these Senate Democrats or these um, House Democrats as well who are saying we want more, or he's kind of subtly signaled that he wants more, pointing to the child tax credit that was in place during COVID and uh, I think their their PR team specifically said we're really proud of the full child tax credit yeah. and the extent that it went to to reduce child poverty. So Biden is trying to pull it up too, but I think that kind of subtle messaging does also show that he will sign whatever they're able to get mm -hmm. when they do get it. Um, he's just trying to pull it further to the left or pull more money into that tax cut. And one thing that Joe Biden has to love about this is that it's totally paid for. There's yeah. no deficit spending going on. Exactly. There's no deficit spending. This is just reallocation of money. We're like, oh, this this tax credit we're giving out is fraudulent. Let's give it to Main Street businesses and children. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's it's one of those it's like an easy we, win. We talk about cost benefit a lot. It's hard to see the costs here, right? They can just take that money out and give it to the families who need it most and who are going to spend it in the economy most effectively. Absolutely. Um, I just want to read one other quote that does talk about this point of Congress trying to get something done versus being obstructionist and kind of where the view of the public might be on that right now. Um, Michael Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, said, what you're seeing here in terms of politics is both parties, instead of failing and then pointing fingers at the other side and blaming the other side for failing, I think both parties have concluded that the American people would rather see progress and they'd rather see the two parties working together. Whether there's a political lens on that, I don't know, but I suspect that it is a reaction to people knowing that folks at home are sick and tired of the chaos. Good shit, Michael Bennett. That's fantastic. Like, yeah. if we are actually in that place, this is exactly where our government needs to be. And I'm almost, I'm glad that enough messaging has been put out there that it's been hammered home into people's heads that we're not, like, that even though we're more polarized than ever, what we hate even more than compromise is nothing getting done. Yeah. And it's crazy to think about, like, this has actually been a fairly good bipartisan Congress. Totally. It actually has. But, yeah. Well, not this one, but like the previous one. You know what I mean? Like not, not since Republicans took the House. Yes. But like the, before that, like we got the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed in the Senate with majority with, with, with Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. The CHIPS bill passed with Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. Now we have a child tax credit tax change. 
looking like it could pass in the Senate with Republican and Democrat support. Yeah. We have another thing. But let's talk about, want to do shutdown first? Sure. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about governing not government not functioning the way it's supposed to. Well, hey, at least they didn't shut down. Yeah, at least. Okay. Yeah. Headline. Government did not shut down. Yeah. Again. Uh, again. So the government has avoided a shutdown. Um, the it, it was passed in the Senate earlier yesterday with a healthy margin of victory. Then it went over to the House. And Mike Johnson put up a continuing resolution that is just redoing the 2023 funding through 2024. Just moving the money along, you know, just business as usual. This is exactly what Republicans didn't want to see. Yeah. So 107 House Republicans voted for it. 106 voted against it. Only two Democrats voted against the continuing resolution. I don't know one of them. I know the other. It's actually our representative here in Brookline, Massachusetts. Really? Yeah. Uh, Auchincloss? Auchincloss. Auchincloss, yeah. Jake Auchincloss. He voted no because he is a big supporter of Ukraine funding, and he doesn't like that the government is operating without money to ukraine so he's voting no on every cr until ukraine funding is passed which i i do agree with him in spirit yeah i don't agree with his method but it is what it is yeah uh you know it's not I, like it had any material benefit that's the thing he's doing it because it doesn't matter yeah he's doing it because it's a virtue signal it doesn't yeah. take anything to do it mm-hmm. so this is a big deal for mike johnson this is exactly what you know kevin mccarthy did and then kevin mccarthy lost his job which again is also what mike johnson just did and was not supposed to do and got all of the far-right republicans mad at him right and also initially like after the first continuing resolution he passed he vowed that he wouldn't do it again he literally said johnson when he took on the role he said the government by continuing resolution is over well <laughs> i guess not dude no clearly the sec- not the second you get hit with the train that is functioning the government turns out you can't take things off the table <laughs> like that and it's not that easy because your ideology can't fit into every fucking peg it, it is it is crazy because continuing resolutions are are actually like as long as we have a Republican speaker, they are the only way that they can stay in power. Which and is even so those funny. like that that's what got McCarthy ousted, obviously. Yes. But also, but it's going to look worse if he signs into law a budget that actually compromises with Democrats, which is the only way he can sign a budget into law. Which means that Republicans are just spending more money than they would like to. Because if they just yeah. would have compromised with the Democrats and took in and taken the Schumer Johnson deal, mm-hmm. which was a sixteen billion dollar cut, it was something. But instead, that sixteen billion dollars is still getting spent, yep. and now you're just losing time in the year. Exactly. Because now, even if what you appropriate the funds out to September, we're we're talking about less and less time that your policies even matter. Yeah. So it's just all a ridiculous mess. Mm-hmm. Um. So now. The House Freedom Caucus is furious. They, of course. They went out on X, and they this is like the House Freedom Caucus official Twitter X page, okay? Yep. This is what surrender looks like. I mean, I can't <laughs> fathom that these people are real, you know? Like, do they know how government is supposed to work? Do they understand that it's all about give and take and negotiation, and you don't always get what you want, and, like, the government needs to operate and function? They don't want it. They That's don't want to see it. That's not what they believe in at So all. after Johnson started passing the short-term deal um there was one representative eli crane he's from arizona he was one of the guys who uh voted out kevin mccarthy he's already floated the deal floated the idea of ousting speaker mike johnson so we've already got someone in the works being like "Mm, you know what i think i want to fire this guy i wonder if so let's say you get someone even more far right than johnson Mm -hmm. is there any chance so and let's say they get in and they shut down the government is there any chance you get republicans like near the middle that oust that guy god i would hope so 
That would be hilarious. God, that would be so funny. It then it's literally happen, though, probably, right? No, I think I don't think the moderates in either party have enough of a spine to do something like that. Exactly. You know, to be honest. Yeah, they're not ideologically pure enough. You know what? I, I heard an awful scary statistic. This is really scary. 40% of Michigan voters don't know who controls the House of Representatives. Oh, it's not even that surprising, though, right? But it... it but that means what? Do they attribute all these problems to Democrats? Probably. Do, or do they Just not even know these the problems are happening? The pr- um, no, yeah. you know what? I think it's you. I think you might be right. Really? I think they might just be attributing every problem in the government to the president. I don't know. No, I don't know about this because this okay. is specifically congressional. Yeah, like, this, this is, is right. This like, is like it, almost in the weeds. It's like if you, yeah, if you read the news at all, then you're getting the information about what's happening in this situation. True. Right. If you read enough to know that this is happening, you kind of have to know what's causing it. Yes. Otherwise, you don't read anything at all and you don't know what's happening. That's true. So I guess that means that 40% of people don't know what the government was about to shut down. Which is also really scary. Uh, but but not surprising. No, not surprising. No. But crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, now we get into the big fight of the week. I mean, this has just been a crazy, crazy story. Mm. The border fight. So we know that the Republicans have been obsessively scared about the flow of migrants into our country. Um, and they're not totally wrong. The rates of migrants crossing the border illegally has doubled since like 2019. There is definitely an issue there. No doubt about that. Um, but Joe Biden has been attempting to make some progress on this front. And he has used uh, moderate senators like uh, Kirsten Sinema, um, one uh, kind of almost progressive Democrat senator, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, and then a Republican senator, uh, Lankford, out in Oklahoma, to come to this bipartisan deal on how we could shore up the border. And it comes down to these six main points. More border, more funding for border security. He wants high-tech sensors put in for fentanyl detection. He wants more asylum officers, about 1,600, to ease the process of getting asylum seekers through the courts and trial systems, limit the number of asylum seekers who are allowed to cross illegally, streamline asylum claims at the at, at ports of entry and then make asylum interviews much more in-depth make them more stringent mm-hmm. so these are the six points of this bill um mitch mcconnell he's come out and he's super in support <laughs> mitch mcconnell's like this type of bill would never pass with a republican in the white house and this is the best chance to get something done yeah mcconnell is totally on board with this he's emphatically on board with this because he kind of knows the truth Joe Biden doesn't like the immigration issue. He hates it. Mm-hmm. He's hated it forever. Yeah. We talk about, we've talked about news articles where Joe Biden has come out and he's literally just hates, doesn't want to touch it. He wants it to go away. And this would be doing something significant enough on it that you couldn't really come at him for it. Anymore. Yeah. And the way that he's tying it to Ukraine funding, it really shows like he's ready to give away a lot for Ukraine funding. Yeah. Well, that's, that's I think, the main reason why he wants to do it, at least from what I've read. Yeah, right? yeah like, I agree. The, he's... Uh, generally the West, Western leaders, including Biden, they're scared about what Ukraine is about to do in the coming spring and summer mm-hmm. without more support. Yes, they're worried that if they go through with an offensive against Russia, that don't then they don't have the best amount of weaponry that they could have if the United States and the rest of the EU were to sure up the supplies. Um, maybe they could fail horribly and the war could be almost over. Yeah, well, also, if Russia goes on an offensive of their own, yeah. Ukraine doesn't have the weapons to defend themselves. Yes. Yeah. But House Republicans are not taking the bait. They are not excited by this Senate plan. And in fact, they are opposite of excited. They are in full rejection and they hate it. 
uh, because they hate everything and they hate themselves. So why are House Republicans not interested? Well, they are emphatically in support of what what they passed as HR2. This is their border deal. This is what they wanted to change at the border. And I'm going to read through a couple things that are on it. Limit the claims at official ports of entry. Um, then they want to limit the executive branch's parole powers. Now, we talked about parole last week, and I got something wrong last week. Okay. Parole is... Now, correct me if I'm incorrect, but whatever. Parole is when the president of the United States is allowed to say, okay, you guys from Cuba are facing a really, really tough time. You are allowed to come here to escape your government, and then we'll give you fast track to, like, you know, job stuff. But it's, like, specifically talking and targeting high um, impoverished, high-risk nations. I th- I believe that's true. Okay. And, and it's a it's a set capped number. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think it's something like... 30,000 people from Venezuela are allowed in every month from parole. Okay. So then they want to limit the executive branch's control over that so that the president can't set the patrol limit. The parole limit. The parole limit. They want it to be a congressional parole limit. Then they want to roll back protections for migrant children. I swear to God, Representative Luna from Texas actually wants to bring back child separation because she is convinced that the people who are bringing children across the border are not, in fact, their parents with no evidence to suggest that. They had witnesses on the at this committee hearing where she's saying this to a, to a bureaucrat who helps run these departments. And he's like, that is not the case. You are totally incorrect. These people are their parents. We have documents proving that, that they're their parents, especially since trying to bring back the children that were separated under Donald Trump's disgusting, inhumane child separation policy. We know that it was the children, the people who came with them. And so for her to suggest that, you know, this would be protecting migrant children is a lie. Just wrong. Just wrong. Then mandate employers to electronically verify immigration status before hiring, um, restart border wall construction, raising the initial screening standards. Um, Those are the big points. And you know what? Out of those seven, two of them are in the Senate bill. Not many. But there's two of them in there. Why? This something what, versus nothing. Something versus nothing, dude. Sure. This is what kills me. It's like you know that there are at least two things in here that you don't like, mm-hmm. okay? Or two two that things in like. here that you do like. I'm sure they're not happy that Biden isn't limiting asylum claims at the ports of entry. But what are we going to yeah. do? That's how asylum works. People are allowed to come into the country, claim asylum, get their voices heard in a court. And if they're rejected, they, we send them home. Yeah, that's it. It is hard because asylum because there's a number of people, or at least based on like qualitative interviews, that makes it people are coming here to seek asylum because they they do the interview and then they have what a year or more to wait mm-hmm. for the actual court hearing to figure out whether they're allowed to stay here for asylum. So a lot of the time, it does seem like people are coming just so they can get released into the country. And then they can go to their court hearing um, or they can skip their court hearing and try to stay here illegally. Yes. Which does not happen that often, I will say. Does not? The skipping of the court hearing does not happen that often. Okay. But even if not, it gives them a free, usually year at least, to stay in the country. It does. Which... But then that's that's another thing Biden is trying to fix with the 1,600 more people. Yes. Right? So he's trying to speed up that whole asylum process. Mm -hmm. And with the the stringent interviews. Like he's trying trying to make it so that he can send more people, he can deport more people just off of that interview. Yeah. And a lot of Republicans are actually using that line of argument. A lot of them are saying like, look, hold on. If we get a Republican in the White House, we'll be able to use these rules passed by this bill to do a lot more than what we were able to do before. Yeah. Which is bad. Mm. right but give and take 
Yeah. If we want the good things to happen. Yeah. I mean, like, it's the same thing about the filibuster. We always talk. I'm a huge proponent of getting rid of the filibuster. I think it's, you know, just doesn't allow the ruling and winning party of election to govern, Mm -hmm. stops democracy in its tracks. Um, But that means you have to accept when the other party wins, they get to do what they want. And then the voters just have to pick and choose the right people to lead the government. Yeah. But so John Cornyn, he is a senator from Texas. He he said this regarding H.R. 2. They simply don't have the votes to pass it. And we just have to deal with the hard reality of that. You get a choice. You either get the votes and get half a loaf or you get nothing at all. And I think talking to my governor, he's not interested in waiting another year for Congress to get its act together. And we need more thinking like that. Mm. We need exactly more, more thinking like compromise that. willing thinking. Yeah, we do. It's the only way our government's going to be able to function. Mm. Um, the, now, in addition to this, Republicans in the House just simply are not negotiating in good faith. They're not. Um, we have Representative Troy Niels. He said, let me tell you, I'm not willing to do a damn to do damn much right now to help a Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. I will not help the Democrats try to improve this man's dismal approval ratings. I'm not going to do it. Why would I? Yeah. Um, Mike Johnson has come out and he says, I don't think it's time for comprehensive immigration reform because of how complicated it is. And then in the same breath, he goes, I do think it's past time to secure the border. It's like we're trying. Yeah. That, that's what Joe Biden is trying to do. Yeah. He has it in his mind that Joe Biden has executive authority to just do whatever the hell he wants. And that's just not true. Do you want the president to just be able to run through and do anything it wants without congressional approval and spend money any which way without going to Congress and asking? Yeah. He doesn't want that. Like, as a congressman, do you want that? No. As the Speaker of the House? Of course not. No, he doesn't want that. He's no. just saying that because he doesn't want it to be on his plate. Yes. They're 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 skirting the issue as much as they can so that they can... Because immigration is probably the Republicans' most successful issue, right? The most favorable issue. So they need to maintain their stance on it but also not be seen as being the only thing in the way of making progress on it. Trump literally, this is what his whole election is running on. He has said, uh, he said that immigrants are poisoning the blood of a country. He calls them mentally inferior. He makes up lies that there is a concerted effort to destroy our country by bringing in weak, quote unquote, people. I'm sorry, quote unquote, weak people. (laughs) They are people. Jesus. And then he says that immigrants are bringing diseases that will destroy our nation and make us sick. So this is the only this is the only thing he's got going for. him. This is what he's running on. It's at least his most powerful message, I would say. And he knows it is because he called Laura Ingram the other night before her show on Fox News. Really? He called her and specifically asked Laura Ingram to ask Mike to to bring up the border issue with Mike Johnson. And so she has Mike Johnson on with the show. Laura Ingram says that she just got off the phone with Donald Trump. First of all, let's step back there. Do we want our political leaders calling up media figures and telling the media figures what to say on air? Do we want that? Does that sound like a good fucking country? Does that sound operable? Does that sound fair and balanced and a good way to disseminate information to people? Would we ever accept that from Joe Biden doing that to MSNBC? I know I wouldn't. I wouldn't accept Joe Biden personally going on the phone and telling Rachel Maddow what to say. I wouldn't be cool with that. So are we cool when Trump does it? Are you cool with Trump does it? You shouldn't be. But she asks Mike Johnson, Mike Johnson, you better not vote for this border deal. Mike Johnson says, no. I just got off the phone with Donald Trump, and he told me that it was a bad deal. The, all of these people are ruled by this one guy. Yeah. 
he's ruling the he's ruling the Republican base from his cell phone in Mar-a-Lago right totally, now. Totally, totally. Or courtroom. I mean, and Johnson specifically said, I think, that he would he or he signaled that he was not going to accept any border deal that was tied to Ukraine aid. Well, that's just saying you're not going to accept a border deal because that's the that's the point yeah. on the Democratic side. Yeah. And so now now let's flip it. There's also a progressive problem. Just like the child tax credit. There are mm. far right people who don't like the child tax credit. There's far left people who don't like the child tax credit. Well, there's a good majority of the Democrat base in the House that really isn't happy with this border deal. Mm. Um, when, you know, there's a lot going on here that puts progressives in a bad spot because it seems like the fight of good immigration reform has been greatly reduced to what it was say, in 2013. Mm. In 2013, Obama and the Gang of Eight was working to do this border deal that Marco Rubio was leading in the Senate, and it was going to give amnesty to one, to, I'm sorry, it was going to give amnesty to 11 to 12 million undocumented immigrants in the country. Mm. Um, this, <laughs> we're not even talking about that anymore. No. Now we're talking about our best case scenario is getting more asylum officers to hopefully either get people in the country legally and keep them here or kick them out faster. Yeah. We're not even talking about the 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 uh, path to citizenship problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of sad. And yeah. Democrats aren't really happy how much this issue has moved. Yeah, I kind of I kind of get it. Like even as we talk about these points that are in Biden's deal with limiting the executive branch's parole powers. I would also be scared to sign on to something like that because it it does destroy this general principle of wanting to welcome more people, mm-hmm. right? We want to help raise more people up. And I feel like that's something that both of us are very much for. So we do, we want to be able to, like we want something to get done because what we talked about last week on the show is we want the conversation to be able to move more towards a path to citizenship, right? We want it to be able to move more in a liberal direction, in a more accepting of immigrants' direction. But the problem is right now, the volume of the flow of migrants across the border means that it's any any conversation about a positive change for a better legal immigration system is completely clouded out by the conversation about reducing illegal immigration. So we want to be able to shift that conversation, but if if it's going to take corrupting that base view of more legal immigration, of being welcoming to more people to be able to handle the illegal immigration problem because Republicans are asking for too much, is it worth it? Right? And that's the hard call. It starts to become yeah. I I like I like the 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 border deal specifically for the point of entry thing making it easier to come across the border at a point of entry and claim asylum that's Mm -hmm. huge because there were reports of specific points of entry just turning people away when they're not really allowed to do that no so having a much more enforced policy of like no no no, you have to let these people in at the point of entry and this is a better way to track them so we know who's coming in exactly we we decrease the illegal crossings we decrease the incentive for illegally crossing Mm -hmm. you know i think that's the better way to do it yeah. If this is the system we're going to have, this is the best way to run that system. Yeah, I agree. So now there's other developments with the immigration stuff. Yes. So as far as good news on migrants that are already here, um, they're finally starting to work, which is awesome. We had a Boston Globe article about migrants that are living in Massachusetts right now. Um, and the Healy, Governor Healy, her administration puts out a report 
every two weeks on kind of the state of the migrant crisis and the the migration sheltering in the state. Um, one of the things that they reported recently is that the number of migrants with work permits in Massachusetts tripled in just the two-week span that the report was written over. So that's a huge deal. We talked months ago about something called temporary protected status, which allows um, migrants, mostly from Venezuela, it was allowing like 470,000 Venezuelans to fast track to getting work authorization. Um, there are other avenues like parole for that to happen. And because of some clinics that the state put the state government put on to help with the application process, as well as legal assistance, um, a lot more of these applications have been able to get through. Now, it still takes about three and a half months to process those apps. But while in the meantime, while those migrants are waiting, the state has launched a skills training program to teach them so that they're ready to take up these jobs. And this is ending up being good for everybody. Exactly. It's good for employers. It's good for the migrants because every testimony that is in these articles is like they're extremely eager to work. They're great people to have on board. Uh, and it's it's removing the burden from the public shelter system. Yes. So migrants are the ones who are doing the jobs that Americans don't want to do. This is why they don't outcompete native workers as we, as we talked about in our deep dive on immigration. It's part of why they're so great for the economy. Um, they're working as hospital housekeepers. They're packaging cooking oil. They're removing snow. They're cleaning. They're doing library work and security. Um, it's just it's just great news. It's what we've been wanting. It's why we are huge proponents of immigration on this show. Um, and it just goes to show that there are real effects that come from administrative burden being taken off and allowing these people to work. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just wanted to call that out. Okay, so next up, we are going to move to what I think is the, probably the hottest piece of international news right yeah. now as far as um, the strikes that the U.S. has been making on Houthi weapons strongholds. Um, they've struck the Houthis three times. The first time was the 11th, which was right when we recorded our last episode. I think it might have actually been four times, and I just didn't update this recently enough. That just goes to show you how fluid and how intense we are bombing this area of the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we're So we're very specific with these strikes. We're targeting their missiles and their ammunition caches in 60 different locations. We've uh, targeted them with over 150 precision-guided bombs and missiles. These strikes have been effective, uh, I think we've hit like 90% of the targets, but they still retain 75% of their capacity to fire. Uh, the Houthis do. The Houthis do. Yeah. So Damn. it's not stopping them, but it's kind of it's kind of all we can do right. if we want to. Of course, the broader context here, the Houthis have been shooting missiles and drones into the Red Sea to attack shipping companies in protest of Israel's assault on Gaza. And now we have shipping companies going around Cape and New Hope instead of going through the Suez Canal, which is adding massive amounts of cost yeah. to everybody else around the world. Exactly. Um, Joe Biden was asked, he's like, are these strikes effective? And he was like, effective? No. Will they continue? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Again, pretty it's, much it's, where we're at. it's all he can do. And it's, it is a tough situation for him to be in. Uh, the U.S. has been scrambling to assemble any kind of intelligence about the Houthis because Yemen and the Houthis just have not mattered 
right? For, like ever. So they're they're getting information on what kind of cap- capabilities they have. Um, obviously, the Houthis are backed by Iran. So that's another part of why some people, including me, think that this, like the U.S. can't really make a difference here because no matter how much of the Houthis' capacity that they take out, Iran is just going to supply them with more. Yes. Uh, so... What the U.S. has done as well is designate the Houthis as a terrorist group, which blocks them from the global financial system. Uh, but again, they're just going to align with kind of the quote-unquote axis of resistance. Which is Russia, China, Iran. Exactly, which is which is trying to exist outside of the global system anyways. Uh, some have even said, and I, I think this is an interesting point, that the situation is boosting the legitimacy of the Houthis. Because they've been in this state where they, they're they in control of about half of Yemen, but are only recognized as the official government by Iran right now. Mm-hmm. And simply by being acknowledged to this extent by the U.S. with these kinds of attacks, that's that's legitimizing the Houthis as a group. It definitely adds legitimacy to the Houthis in Yemen, right? Yeah. Right. In the country of Yemen, the people that are there definitely see the Houthis as more, you know, uh, with more legitimacy now, like, oh, man, you're taking on the big dogs? Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, the problem is the Houthis are making an impact. They are impacting global trade. They're doing mm. something that not only the U.S., but the U.K. and our other allies, we, we care about it. Like, it is making it harder to buy things at cost, and that hurts people in these countries. That... And we'll say it doesn't just hurt people in the imperial core. It no, doesn't no, no, no. just hurt people in Britain and the United States. It's hurt, it hurts people in Nigeria. It hurts people in Egypt, right? I, I was just reading an article about how um, multiple uh, Chinese company business owners are suffering because their shipping costs have, have like doubled mm-hmm. because of this, right? Because all of their ships are now taking twice as long to make their deliveries. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not it's not just a US thing, which is why the 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 whole rationale behind it of protesting the Israel assault isn't really a legitimate one. No, it's flawed. It's flawed. This yeah. is this is ridiculous. It, they're not I, I I can't even accept the framing because they're not just going after ships going to Israel. Mm-mm. They're going after ships. Period. They're exactly. going after ships. They have no way of knowing what ships is going to Israel and which one isn't. Exactly. And then what they're doing here is they're making all these companies fear going through the Red Sea and going through the Suez Canal, which that that, that doesn't help Israel at all. No. Oh, I'm sorry. That doesn't help Gaza and the people of Gaza at all. No. You know? So, and if anything, it makes the rest of the world more angry about the position. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think it's ridiculous. I think the entire... I, I've heard... I, I was a big proponent of, of stopping, uh, of not assisting Saudi Arabia with their war on the Houthis, because this civil war has been going on for a long time. Decade, yeah. Yeah, and Saudi Arabia has been um, putting a blockade on the Houthis, which is starving a lot of people in Yemen. And the United States was participating in that by refueling Saudi fighter jets, by, you know, giving the Saudi military aid for uh, stuff and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And all that should have been stopped, right? There's no, there's no way that we can be comfortable with the United States selling missiles to Saudi Arabia that are being used on civilians in Yemen. That's not right. That's not fair. But that doesn't mean that the people saying that should be pro-Houthi, okay? No. You can say, let's not sell weapons to Saudi Arabia so that they can bomb Yemeni's children. You, you sh- That doesn't need to come with being pro 
Houthi. Yeah, and that's that's a that's an interesting and an important broader conversation to have because there is a portion of the left yes. right now that is just pro Houthi. And it's fucking gross, dude. These guys brought back slavery in Yemen. These guys want the elimination of the Jewish people, period. Yeah. They're not they're not cool. These aren't like freedom fighters here. No. That's not what's happening. No, it, it is a it is a tendency to overly simplify these issues into black or white. And because these leftists are placing themselves as opposed to Israel, that suddenly means they're they they feel they need to be pro Houthi to feel secure in their own identities. Yes. These these issues are more nuanced, just as we've talked about with Israel and Hamas. Both sides can be bad. The Houthis are another bad actor in this game. And uh, I'm going to be honest, the Americans trying to keep trade going through the Suez Canal is not the United States being a bad actor. Exactly. How is the United States being a bad actor? Giving military aid to Israel. Yes. That's the United States being a bad actor. How is Biden being a bad president? Using executive authority to get more tank ammunition to Israel without congressional approval. That is Biden being a bad actor. Is Biden being a bad actor by bombing ammunition sites of a group that wants to eliminate all Jews, brought back slavery, and is now stopping global trade? No, that's not the United States being a bad actor. No, not at all. This this is not a problem. But there is still the question out there of whether Biden has overstepped mm. as far as... That's a fair question. Right? Yeah. So there are some who, who say that these missile strikes and these bomb strikes on Yemen are... They required a congressional declaration of war before he was able to do that. Um, I... It's almost, it's almost hard for me to care... Right? I don't know. What like, do you think? I'm pretty sure the War Powers Act, whether you agree with it or not, gave the president the power to do these types of things and make these judgment calls. I read the War Powers. I was reading it, um, but it, it was like a week ago now, and I forget exactly what it says. Yeah. I mean, um, it, was it early 2000s? Yeah, it, was, it should be 2001, right? It should be right after 9-11. Yeah. The War okay. Powers Act was passed. And I'm pretty sure that delegated a lot of authority to the executive branch to make these type of snap decisions. Yeah. Um, especially when we're going after groups that aren't technically states. Now, um, this isn't like the United States like going into Iraq without a formal declaration of war against Iraq. I don't think it's that, right? It's not that's not yeah. what's happening. We're not invading all of Yemen no. with a whole ground force, right? No. So but I don't e know. But even that is is like we used this, so authorization of use for military force of two thousand one. In between twenty eighteen and twenty twenty, the US used this piece of legislation yeah. to initiate counter-terror activities in, in Niger, 85 right? different countries. Yeah, and Niger was a big one of them, which we talked about a lot. But yeah, so we, we expanded our, our military outreach a lot using this thing under the Trump administration. Um, yeah. So like, and, and even under the Obama administration, under the Biden administration, it's actually been less than any other president. We If we look at, if we look at like drone strikes around the world, mm -hmm. it's basically almost zero yeah. with Biden now. He completely eliminated the United States drone operation mm -hmm. abroad. We, we, our, our civilian casualties are bottomed out compared to what they were under the Trump administration. Uh, this is important to note, and then we'll move on here. Donald Trump increased military drone strikes, I think, by 472% as compared to Barack Obama. Wow. That's how much he ramped up the United That's, States drone war. And people see Obama so much as the the drone striking president. Like he's just Trump bombing everyone. The, Trump was the drone striking president. Trump was the war president. I'm so sick of people saying Donald Trump was the pro-peace, anti-war candidate. That's ridiculous. That's only an anti-war candidate if you're only looking at war through the lens of American lives. Yes. If you're only looking at the casualties of war through how many Americans died, maybe Donald Trump was somewhat of an anti-war. But if you're looking at it from... 
Who drops the biggest bomb in Afghanistan, killing a bunch of civilians? That's Trump. Who ups the drone strikes 473%? That's Donald Trump. So, cut me a break. Yeah, I'm with you. The only other thing I would talk about here is whether we think there's risk of expanding to a regional war. We know that in addition to these Houthi strikes, um, that tensions at the Lebanese border of Israel have been ramping up and the Biden administration is tr- doing everything it can to maintain, to prevent that from exploding into all-out war. Um, I don't know. The The risk with the, the Houthi part of this becoming all-out war is still the connection to Saudi Arabia, yeah, right? And Saudi Arabia's fight with them. Um, Saudi Arabia's fight with the Houthis has been kind of winding down because they're they're thinking we've been at this for 10 years they're still there and Houthis kind of won yeah they're they're it's guerrilla warfare right all they have to do is survive and they have Mm -hmm. um I don't and I I kind of don't think that Saudi Arabia is going to be drawn back into it no I don't think so either I think I think it's over okay I'm not I'm not too worried about becoming regional okay now let's talk about China yes last thing so with with the new year, we're going to be getting a lot of important data coming out about what happened in 2023. And one of the most important pieces that has come out recently, one of the things that I had my eye on the most, is how much did China's population decline in 2023? It declined for the first time ever in 2022. Um, and now we learned that their population declined by over 2 million people in 2020 three which is enormous it was nine million births 11 million deaths if you look at the graph on this you see a precipitous decline in the birth rate since 2016 about that has just continued to go down and deaths just keep on rising and they've been rising since i think the early 2000s Mm -hmm. because china's demographics are completely screwy where every decade of age basically like 70 to 80 60 to 70 the further up you go the more people there are uh and there are also a bunch of these cultural issues and policy issues from the past that now are discouraging people not only from getting married but then from having kids so china obviously hastened its demographic problem with the one child policy which pushed down birth rate over several decades but the rule also created generations of only child girls who were given an education and employment opportunities, which turned them into empowered women who are very reluctant to, they're, they're resistant to the ideas coming down from government at the top that they should be pushed back into the home. Uh, she, though, has still been urging government officials to persuade women to return to the traditional roles in the home. Um, But the problem is China also has deep-seated gender inequality that discourages women from getting married and from having kids. One woman said, it seems that the government's birth policy is only aimed at making babies, but doesn't protect the person who gives birth. Mm. It does not protect the rights and interests of women. So when that's the scenario, when that's the context you're in, you don't want to put yourself at the mercy of not only the dangerous proposition of childbirth, but also of being in a relationship with a man. Women cite widely reported domestic violence by men as their rationale for not getting married. And there are plenty of pieces of evidence, there are plenty of instances of the justice system siding with men um, 
and the laws being set up to make it harder for women to be safe in their marriages. So, wow, this is crazy. I never really took this for, this is something I take for granted for being in America, right? Is the Violence Against Women Act. Yeah. Right? Like that's something that China, I guess, doesn't have or doesn't have an equivalent to that women feel safe in their own home and free from domestic violence. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, there, there are plenty of instances of, instances of domestic violence and they feel like they can't easily get out because the government recently instituted a 30-day cooling off period before divorces go into effect because they are trying to keep families together because they think the birth rate is such an issue. Well, that's not how you fix that. Exactly. So what's, what's <laughs> happening, like there was, a, there was one story of a woman who was murdered by her husband yeah, I was during... about to say, like, this seems like a 30-day period where the husband can plan the murder of his wife. Literally. No, that's exactly what happens. And there are popular saying on, sayings online now that are like, a marriage license has become a license to beat. And they're reinforced by these news reports. Um, so China's now in this position. Culturally, they have these women who are empowered and who, even though they've been trying to send this propaganda that uh that women should stay in the home that they should be in traditional family roles uh women have had access to the internet for too long and this feminist movement has built up online so that they aren't aligned with that kind of messaging from the government uh there's really nothing they can do i don't think there's anything they can do to make women feel more incentivized to have children except really liberalize their country but now the problem is it's too embedded in their culture right, to now not like, have families now it's in their mentality now mm-hmm. they now they're like against marriage on principle which i don't blame them i mean like what china needs they need a violence against women act and they need to enact no fault divorce like the united states has exactly that's what they need to do they need to liberalize that so women feel more empowered and more safe in these marriages mm-hmm. but um, even then it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of time yes, right to, that, so that's just a legislative initiative yeah then you have to change the culture which is downstream from legislation right yep. it takes a lot longer time for if you do progressive legislation for that to seep into the cultural mindset yeah right think about how long it took for people to understand oh social security retiring benefits like think about how long it takes for people to comprehend the legislation that gets passed and its implementation and what it means yeah another big issue with this is the low on youth unemployment rate It's very hard for young people to start families in China because the youth unemployment rate is so high. The last piece of data that we had, I think, was in a couple quarters ago, and it had youth unemployment at 25%. Yeah. And then recently, we got new numbers, youth unemployment being at 18%. Well, that's weird. How did it drop so fast? Well, it's because their measure... Their unit of measurement changed. Now they measure unemployment. They don't count people who were in school. So if you're in school, they don't count you as unemployed. Um, That's fine. That's a fine way to do it. But all they did was cook the books. They haven't changed the past numbers to represent the same measuring stick. And also, this is all with the general caveat that any data that comes out of China is extremely unreputable. And we use it because it's all we have, but they've been known to cook the books for a long time. And there's that's a whole other discussion that yeah. we could have to talk about why that happens. But um, it's it, you kind of have to adjust down every number they put out. Yeah. And so now we're getting the situation you have, you, you have low youth unemployment. So it's very hard for people to start families in the first place, get, mm-hmm. be able to move out of their place and get an apartment, get a home. Mm-hmm. Now, we it's like our issue that we have in the United States, but to a much larger extent in China. Yeah. Right. And with the declining birth rate and the declining population, we're going to have a lot of problems coming out of China. They're going to have a really hard time um, being able to pay the pensions 
of their older yeah. residents, right? Yep. Of paying for the healthcare costs of all these older people. And China has the lowest um, retirement age in the world. Mm -hmm. Chinese people retire at 55, which means their their workforce just shrinks faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And I'm curious to see if China goes through with some type of pension reform where they raise the retirement age and what that does. We saw raising the retirement age in France and what that did to that country. They went up in flames. Yeah. I only imagine what would happen in China. Well, well, China's China's just going to, more and more of these reforms as it as its system as it currently is becomes untenable are going to squeeze the people harder. And we know from history, like the more you squeeze, the more likely you are to create a revolution. Yes. Right. So I think it's just kind of a matter of time to see what is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This youth unemployment rate is a really interesting figure for me because there is a whole theory of how revolutions happen. And people ask why there's a Marxian theory, right, about like oppression. And there's a whole bunch of other theories. And, and one that I've always thought interesting, not knowing if I agree with it, but one that I always think is interesting is like the overeducation problem, where you overeducate a large portion of your country um, but you don't have any place to put them. So you give people these great educations, you get them to learn a lot, read a lot, mm -hmm. give them all these skills, and then they have no place to use those skills in the economy. And they get frustrated because they gave up so many years of their lives learning so many things and they think I could run the country better, mm -hmm. but they're not given the chance to prove it. Mm -hmm. And that breeds revolution because this is one of the things that was happening in, in Russia prior to their revolution was you had a university system that was getting more and more open, which was creating more and more middle class um, that eventually led into a revolution. Yeah. So it's just, you know... Um, yeah. So the last thing I think I want to say is, how does this affect climate change? Because with the declining population, I think we're going to be looking at a China that is actually half of what it is now. Like, I think 600 million by... 600 million? Yeah, 600 million by 2100. I think a total... By 2100. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, 600 million Chinese people that's by crazy. the end of 2000. That's less than half of what they have right now. Right. I think it's something around there. It might be 700, whatever. Yeah. But it's around that. How does that affect climate change? Because that means that, you know, the Chinese usage of energy is going to go down. Yeah. If the problem is how climate change modeling works is that it's about the tipping points, right? And the concern is how close we are to the tipping points right now that, for example, destroy all of the polar ice caps. Right, right, right. right, right? right. And so it, it's all a race against time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think China's population, like its population decline will help somewhat, but there's still a country of 1.4 billion. Yeah. And it's... I it's I don't think it's going to have a significant difference as far as how quickly we hit those tipping points because they're too they're too close. Right, we're right, too right. close. To them. No, I understand. Yeah. Deep dive time. Deep dive time. So if you've ever watched this show, you know that we love extremely boring topics. <laughs> and right now or for about the last month, there has been a debate raging in the circles of a few economists um if there is anyone that you guys might have heard of his name is thomas piketty he is a french economist who has done a lot of the work to build data sets that show the growth of income and wealth inequality in the u.s over the past about 60 years well he his research honestly shows the trend from like the aughts or like the teens, like 1913, all the way through to today. And it's it's underpinned a ton of the political activity that's come from it, the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened after the 2007-2008 crash, right? 
all of like kind of the entire progressive agenda that now exists is based off of looking for trying to create greater equality in income, trying to redistribute some of the enormous amounts of wealth and income that we have in this country to the bottom because we feel like the bottom isn't prosperous enough. Um, and now some research has come out from a different team that contests how much income and wealth inequality there is. Uh, and in my opinion, this research has plenty of of merit. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I completely agree with it, but it's worth the discussion. It was really interesting to me when it first came out because you realize when you start, like when we get into these discussions about like really just politicking, like Democrats versus Republicans in Congress, we are so far removed from this understanding of the basic story that we live in within this country. And there's there are fights that are just as intense that are happening just to define the context that we're in. They're actually just trying to define what is good. Yes. Like, right? We always like, oh, I want to make a better country. Well, what does better look like? That's what these two people are arguing about. Yes. And whether and is the country bad right now, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's an interesting question to look at. So I'm going to go in. We're going to this is going to be kind of technical. I'm going to try to give my best breakdown of the analysis of the differences between the two teams. Um, so the first team is Thomas Piketty and two other economists, one named Saez, one named Zuckman. Um, I probably won't. I'll just refer to them as the team. Maybe I'll refer to them as PSZ because those are their initials. They pop, they're the team that popularized the notion that the top 1% is pulling away from the 99%. Okay. Now, uh, they, they've done this using IRS data, which is kind of the, the basic data of income. So you're able to look at publicly available IRS data and tax returns to see what have income distributions been. But the other team, which is a which is composed of economists named Otten and Splinter, they have access to the same data, obviously. And they pretty much take the same takeaways from the reported data to the IRS. There's not much wiggle room here. It's straight up numbers. They trust the data sets. So the rest of what they try to attribute as income is where there's more discrepancy. Because when you think about it, there's, okay, there's the wages you earn, but how would you attribute something like underreported income? Right, we talk. We've had a deep dive here on tax evasion, and how we uh, we talked about how the very rich avoid paying taxes. And there have been some studies that look into how do they avoid paying taxes, how much are they avoiding in their reporting, and these teams, to be more accurate, have tried to allocate that at different points of the income distribution. Right, then you have stuff like government consumption. So these teams, in addition to trying to allocate pre-tax income, they're doing their best to allocate post-tax income because they want to see what kind of effect has these have taxes and government transfers had on the income distribution. Because you might think, right, like we have a progressive income tax system. So maybe after transfers, and we have these programs like Medicaid, Social Security, uh, food stamps, which give more money in one way or another to the poor so maybe that shrinks our that shrinks the inequality in our income distribution the main difference is that these two teams 
found were in these two areas. Okay, so in underreported income, Otten and Splinter, the AS team, they use data from the IRS's National Research Program, which asserts the distribution of underreported income is concentrated at the bottom of the distribution. Now, this is interesting, right? Because when we talk about tax evasion, we talk about it as coming from really complex income sources and complex methods that are concentrated at the top. But then you think, okay, how could people at the bottom be evading taxes? Well, maybe they get paid in cash more often. Maybe they're doing gig jobs. Maybe they're doing stuff like babysitting, pet sitting, and they they simply don't like they're not going to get audited. They don't have to worry mm-hmm. about paying their taxes. So you could think that it makes sense, but um, the PSZ team, the uh, the Piketty team argues that audits are ineffective at detecting sophisticated evasion techniques. So they're like, even though there might be underreported income or a lot of underreported income at the bottom, you're going to miss all of this underreported income at the top as well because these studies that are from audits aren't doing a good enough job at capturing it. And some newer research does corroborate this. And I do support that line of thinking Mm -hmm. because it is very easy to go after unreported income at the lower end of the spectrum one of the easy, one of the most common ways this happens if if someone claims the earned income tax credit when they don't actually should have when they shouldn't have actually received the earned income tax credit that's a very easy thing to catch yes so that's a very easy thing to catch the IRS does it doesn't take much legwork for the IRS to catch you on that and then that gets reported as tax evasion right but because we haven't been going after the tax evasion on the higher end for a long time that leaves me to believe that those numbers aren't as sufficient as they need to be to make this type of conclusion yeah yeah and research says that there are two methods specifically that the rich often use that audits fail to capture one is pass through entities so there are these certain types of businesses called pass-through entities that rich people can basically set up for themselves, and they are largely tax-exempt. So if they just route their money through this pass-through entity, they're able to evade those taxes. Um, also, income that goes into offshore accounts, which we talked about in depth in our deep dive, um, audits fail to capture that a lot of the time. Yes. So those are two of the most commonly used vehicles for the rich to evade taxes. And these papers, these research studies that are based on audits, right, they, they're going to miss all of that. Yes. So I generally fall on the PSZ side on this side that um, the, the story that Otten and Splinter are trying to tell with a far more underreported income at the bottom of the distribution, I don't think that really – I'm not super convinced. I think it's circular a little bit. I mm-hmm. think you're, you're kind of caught in this circular loop. It's like we know, we've identified a problem where – lower income people get audited more. And the reason that they get audited more is because we don't fully fund the IRS so that the IRS has the resources to go after the people at the top. And then the AS team is using that data saying, oh, look, oh, look, oh, look, there's more audits at the bottom. That means there's more tax evasion going on at the bottom. Yeah, That's not really accurate. And we can see, listen, let, let's do this study in five years. After the IRS gets fully funded with the with the money from the Inflation Reduction Act, we've raised like four hundred million bucks going after millionaires already. Five hundred million. Five hundred million bucks. Yeah. going after millionaires. And I think it's like a thousand millionaires we got that money from. Yeah, it's something very small. Let's run these numbers again. Yeah, right? let's let's do this for six years and then run these numbers again and see if this type of relationship still holds. Exactly. 
Exactly. The one other piece of evidence I'll, I'll note is that in the last 40 years, there's not only been a huge spike in the number of pass-through entities, which is kind of That's sus. insinuating something, but also, according to Otten and Splinter's model, there would have been a drastic decline in the percentage of income of the rich that is underreported income. Sure, sure. So like, it, it seems like it all kind of adds up to they're just not capturing a lot of the underreported income from the rich. Mm-hmm. Um, from the government consumption side, this is this is so difficult in my mind to try to allocate. Mm-hmm. You have programs like food stamps, like Medicaid, which give, which food stamps is, is you have a monetary value that you can easily attribute, right? To people, it gives them this amount of money that they can spend on food. Medicaid, you can put in an amount of, Val- you can put a dollar amount on how much that healthcare might cost, but you also have to na- d- you have to allocate all government consumption because they're trying to divide all of the money in the national income number and government consumption taxes that they get is included in that. Mm-hmm. That means you have to allocate military spending, right? How do you? up and down the income spectrum, how do you allocate military spending? That's so hard to think about, right? Right. So um, Piketty, Size, and Zuckman, they allocate government spending equivalently to how other income is distributed, right? They, They assume, their thinking goes like this. Jeff Bezos benefits much more from a reliable and fast shipping network, which relies on government infrastructure, a steady supply of workers, which depends on public education and defense contracts with his companies, than someone at the bottom of the distribution. To me, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I totally agree with but that. But on the other hand, right, Otten and Splinter say the the PSZ method ignores the redistributive and public goods aspects of government consumption. Now, that might be true, but I think hearing how the... Uh, hearing the results of Otten and Splinter's methods kind of makes it, it sounds a little incredulous. And it also starts to call into question why we're even having this conversation, which is the bigger discussion I do want to get into. So Otten and Splinter split, they allocate half of government consumption the same way that PSZ does. They allocate it the same way that income is distributed. And then the other half they give as a lump sum, which means they they give an equal amount of the half of government consumption to everyone. Obviously, the more so the more equivalent amount of income that you give to all of the population, the more you decrease income inequality because that has a much bigger impact on the incomes at the bottom of the distribution right. than it does at the top. So what that what this method does is it means that 20% of the income for the bottom 50% of the distribution comes from government expenditure. In other words, one-fifth of the income for the bottom 50% comes in the form of tanks, roads, and chalkboards. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. Right? That's not income. So then you start to think about what are we what are we talking about? Right? Are we does it make sense to be talking about roads and chalkboards as income? Does it make sense to be talking, even for Jeff Bezos, does it make sense to be talking about a steady supply of skilled workers as income? Oh, I see where you're going with this. Right. Like, what what are we getting at with this income inequality? 
what are we actually fixing? And so this is the the broader conversation that I want to have because as, as we kind of started this out, progressives have looked at income inequality as this bugaboo for so long. It's It's been a main thing that we have to tackle. It's why we think progressive taxation and high taxes on the rich are so important. But do we care about these numbers? Do we care about this post-tax number that um, allocates like chalkboards and tanks to poor people? Or is there something else that we're trying to use income to get at? Are we using income as a substitute for living the good life? Yes. And like, I, I think we are, right? Yeah. I think there there's a more basic point than income here that is that what I've found in a few papers that I've just recently started reading is financial well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think once once you get into this, you realize that like the whatever Otten and Splinter are trying to allocate, they're, it doesn't seem like they're really making the point well anymore that the economic well-being is of the people at really the bottom... Is really trying to measure. Yeah, is, is being measured. Like, oh, it doesn't yeah. seem like the if you're allocating... Um, the the tanks, roads, and chalkboards. If if the if the past the government consumption that passed down to the poor, or not even just the bottom fifty percent, is one fifth of their income, it feels like you're not getting at their financial well being anymore. Right. So, I think it's just an interesting conversation of of what do we care about with income inequality? Mm-hmm. Does is it even right is to think about inequality? quality because as i was thinking about this i'm like don't we just care about what's happening at the bottom do we really care if the top is running away from the bottom besides the fact that it means that we are continuing to make the choice to not make the lives of the bottom better well i disagree okay i think i think running the, the i think one of the issues with income inequality is the overwhelming political power that generates from wealth yeah Right. So when you accumulate wealth, that then translates into political power. No, I I agree with you. On yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So I think there are these um, ancillary points. Right. But that's not actually about the income and the good life itself. Now we're getting into something else. Exactly. It's the political power. Populism starts to arise when all when people look around and they think that there are there is enormous amounts of inequality and that other people mm-hmm. are completely hoarding all the money for themselves. Yeah. And I think those are valid reasons. Oh, and exploitation of workers and uh, taking away surplus value from the people who make the products, all of that stuff. Exactly. But we're not we're no longer measuring like the the economic aspects of people's lives yes. that matter. Right. These are things that they create negative sentiment because it's like that I'm not doing well enough. I should be doing better and the system should help me to do better. Hmm. But um I don't know about looking at inequality this way. Well, much. I think inequality, I think inequality I think it's impossible for inequality to let me put it this way. I don't think it's possible for the top to run away with it and for us to have a functioning government with good social services that ensures a healthy bottom. I think you're right. I think you're right. So again, it's kind of secondary, but it is like okay, as it's if we have inequality, it probably means that we're not doing enough to help the bottom. And I'm a huge proponent of that. Like I, we talk so much about housing on the show. I'm a huge proponent of getting our system to a point where everyone is housed mostly by subsidized housing. 
you need a progressive taxation system to do that. Yeah. And it needs to have a lot of revenue and it, it will necessarily reduce inequality. Mm -hmm. But that's the point. It's a byproduct, right? right? The inequality itself is not the problem. It's just it will shrink if you do the rest of the system right. Yeah. I think one of the other aspects with inequality that is something that we have to tackle mm -hmm. is the geolo geographic inequality. Mm. The difference of uh, the difference of, of who controls capital in the global north and the rest of the world. Right? Okay. So we know, I think this is a big aspect to it, that 20% of the world's population is in the global north, 80% is in the global south. But when we look at the share of global wealth, 70% is in the global north and 30% is in the global south. Yeah. So that's a whole terrible distribution of where capital is and where capital needs to be in order for the majority of humans to live the good life. Mm. Right. So that's that, that's that's really hard, though, because then you're talking like you need a whole world government. You need progressive taxation at the global level. Yeah. Or or as I, I this might be very liberal of me to say, sure. but not from a capital L, but like a neoliberal way to say, okay. like, I, it does the it does bringing people into the global economy and global trade lift them up enough where then they're able to make functional governments that can insinuate, uh, not insinuate, but do this internally? Mm. And I think the answer is yes. I think I we agree. see a lot of examples where foreign companies that rely on foreign direct investment early on yep. develop very, very highly and then are able to build out good social systems and social structures with progressive taxation and a functioning democracy. Look at Taiwan that are then able to bring the good life to the majority of their citizens. I agree with that. Yeah. So, so then you're you're proposing liberalizing global trade? Yeah, I think liber I think liberalizing global trade is one of the better things that we could do to help lift up countries. Definitely, you know, and yeah. then let those countries and it, let those countries, uh, you know, fight for workers' rights and police companies in our home that do participate in child labor. Don't let those companies sell goods in the United States if they're doing child labor, you know, liberalize it to an extent where you have a healthy market, right? Try to apply as many U.S. regulations around the globe as you can, right? Yeah, well, those are those are diametrically opposed, right? Because now we're limiting because the, the goal or the 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 bright side of going abroad is supposed to be uh, loosening worker regulation and all that and cheaper workforce. Yeah. But there's a way to do that, I think, without the child labor piece. I think, like, because the, the best... There, if you look at a track, right, of economy being a track, it's like subsistence farming, mm -hmm. manufacturing, yeah. service economy. The amount of people we can bring out of subsistence farming into manufacturing, yeah. the better off people are going to be. True. I, I, it's funny. I don't, I don't even know... If if banning child labor is a good thing though, oh, because that's I, a hot take. It, it is. It's a good thing, everybody. Don't listen to him. He's fucking wrong. What are you talking about? I'm talking about like the the general idea of of like a neoliberal or of a capital L liberal, yeah. I guess. Um, about or like an Adam Smith about like people make choices, they make exchanges in the economy because it is in their self interest because it's good for them. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like like child labor. Isn't a parent, I mean, maybe this is missing the behavioral economics, but isn't a parent only going to send their child to do child labor if they need to? And if it's totally better for missing, the family? You're missing the behavioral economics for sure. <laughs> that, that child should be in school so he's able to produce more value later on in life. Okay. Right? Okay. Yes. I'm just, I'm just worried about a, I'm thinking about a, fa a family that's starving. Yeah. But like school, yes, but food first. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from. I don't. I don't think that would solve the issue, but I know where you're coming from. Okay. I get the line cool. of thought. I'm glad. Yeah, but I don't agree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, another thing, so like the Oxfam report, 
Oxfam is a is a is a is a, a reporting agency that basically focuses all about inequality. It's what they do. They they release the Oxfam report um, every year, and they they propose some really interesting solutions to income inequality. That yeah. they're really interesting. Yeah, they say that they want governments to reinvent new business models to tackle market power and corporate ownership. So one of the specific things they say in their report is they want workers and local cooperatives to be risen up. They want social enterprises and fair trade businesses. We just did a deep dive last week about worker democracy yeah. and what that means for an economy. We went all in on deep dives and what that means. Yeah. He, they want, the Oxfam wants more things that are owned and governed in the interest of workers and local communities that and the environment itself. And they specifically say this sentence that so summarizes my politics. I never, I can't believe I've never thought of it before. Competitive and profitable businesses don't have to be shackled by shareholder greed. That's so accurate. Yeah. We don't, we can have competitive businesses and healthy markets that don't have to be run by shareholders. That is very true. I, I think, yeah, the more I think about just like give tax breaks to, to co-ops. Oh yeah. Right. Make them tax tax free, bro. And then make them like tax free. If I can do whatever and whatever you need to get them off the ground. Eventually you want to raise the corporate tax rate on co-ops go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. I'm totally okay with that. That's fine by me. Mm. But as long as they're cooperative, like they're, that's a healthy business structure. Exactly. And then we can have governing regulations of how these cooperatives vote in their representatives and all this stuff that we do for shareholders now. Sure. Right. So I thought that was really interesting that Oxfam called that out. Another point on inequality that I think is interesting is how technology is affecting it. Mm. So there was an MIT study that studied the effects of um, automation up to 2016. Mm. Um, and they estimated that automation has reduced wages for men without a high school degree by 8.8%. Inflation adjusted women by 2.3%. So technology is really hurting the lower end of the spectrum in our workforce. Yeah, um, And that has been happening since 2016. How we deal with that, I don't know the right answer. Mm. You know, and look, I know recently we've actually seen some good progress where wage growth in the bottom 20% is the highest it's ever been and is actually outpacing all other income groups. So like the the income group that is growing the least, um, growing the slowest is actually the top 20%. Yeah. The top 20% is seeing the lowest amount of wage growth. Which is kind of what you want all the time. Yeah. Right. I, I mean... I'll say you still want wage growth everywhere, but you want the top 20% to have the lowest growth, then a little bit higher, then a little bit higher. Exactly. So it's interesting how income inequality has changed. It's in, it's interesting how the solutions have changed. These Oxfam reports haven't been saying these local co worker. I look back at the old ones, 2019, 2020. They didn't talk about cooperatives. Mm. And it seems like an, a, a shift in their language. Interesting. That's it's kind of exciting that that's entering the discourse in uh, a widely read publication. Yeah. Yeah. But that's our deep dive on income inequality, guys. We'll be back at you in a couple days. We're going to try to talk on we're going to record again on like Tuesday, Tuesday. So which is right before the New Hampshire primary. So we'll see what happens. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.